All right, we doing good? Good to see you guys. Hopefully it's good to see me. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Uh, we are, like Andy said, kicking off just a series for August. We'll be back in Romans uh, come September. Uh, and we call this city, series A City in the City. Uh, it stems from a value for us as a church we've talked a lot about since we began, that we have a heart to exist in the city that we love so much, but we desire to be beautifully countercultural in the process. That is that as we do life differently, we put on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, hopefully that sounds enticing to give you a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain. Actually, what this series is, is I was on sabbatical for the first part of the summer, and I thought about four different things, realities, truths that I really tried to press into and learn about. And so basically, if we were titling the series accurately, it would be like four things that Brian thought about during sabbatical, but that's like not the most enticing. That looks a lot cooler than that. So um, that's basically what it is. We'll look at different realities that emerge, I think, from the life of Paul in particular, uh, the author of Romans that shows the way that he was uh, different, different for the glory of God. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning is the reality of dependency, the reality of dependency, that the people of God have always been at their best when they've been marked by a high dependency on uh, the Spirit of God to move in their lives. Um, one of the things I thought a lot about while I was on sabbatical was just our church beginning. Our church began back in January of 2011 in this neighborhood. But the church really began a couple of years before that, actually. Um, you don't just move to a city and start a church. And so for a couple of years, uh, 2009, 2010, uh, we spent a lot of time praying, preparing, learning, developing a core team, developing vision, casting vision, and uh, raising money, raising a lot of money. Because Denver's expensive. I don't know if you knew this, but Denver is a very expensive city to, to live in and to start a church in as well. And so there was a normal rhythm in my life, uh, particularly in 2010, where I would travel around... Uh, North Carolina, rural parts of North Carolina and parts of the South, and I would go have the most bizarre Shark Tank experience of my life. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but this like bizarre spiritual Shark Tank where I would go and I'd preach at a church, and if I preached good enough, they like give us money for our church to start. A lot of pressure, and uh, that's just the way that it worked. And so um, it was a normal rhythm in our life that we would do this. And um, actually, what happened was I did this so frequently in 2010. I developed like a go-to sermon for this. It was from Acts 2, 42 through 47. It was all about the early church and how what marked the early church was the gospel, community, and mission. And this is what they did in the first century. And this is what we're going to do in the 21st century. Any questions, open your pocketbooks. I know we're going to do this for the glory of God. And people were like, that's, you know, you just did it enough that you thought it was going to land. My wife heard this sermon so much, she, no joke, started calling it the Brian Barley special. Um, we would we, we'd be driving to some like rural part of North Carolina, I'd pull up to a church, and she'd just very graciously tag along, and she'd be like, you doing the Brian Barley special this morning? I'm like, I'm doing the Brian Barley special, baby. That's right. And she'd be very gracious and sit there and laugh at the same jokes and be like, mm, that's good at the parts that were like, she thought were good. And uh, yeah, it was, it was the way it went. So I spent a lot of time uh, during sabbatical thinking about the early years. I spent a lot of time during sabbatical thinking about the Brian Barley special. Here was my biggest takeaway during sabbatical about the Brian Barley special is it was not very good. Uh, that's not false humility. That's a reality. It was not very good. One, because when you just start communicating, you're usually not naturally very good at it. And so that was a big piece of it. But also, um, I realized that I didn't really like teach that part of the Bible very faithfully. That like, yeah, like what you see are these amazing aspects of what marked the early church. Um, but here's the thing, is that the early church's ability to birth these miraculous fruits of God only came from their high dependency on the Spirit of God. Or if you're familiar with that part of the Bible, what precedes 
Acts 2, 42 through 47, is Acts 1 in the early part of Acts 2. What precedes the people of God birthing these beautiful, miraculous fruits of God that we all, even regardless of what your worldview might be, would yearn to mark the type of people that we would be, is the giving of the Spirit of God in response to these people's high dependency to say, like, if you don't step into our lives and if you don't move, we are not going to produce what you've called us to produce out of our own giftedness and intellectual prowess. And it's really convicted me that, like, that was my go-to sermon and it was not the most accurate or faithful. And so maybe today is a course correction of that. We're going to talk about dependency. And uh, here, here's kind of the heart of what we're going to be talking about, and then we'll, we'll chase after it, is that what we see, what I hope you see emerges, is anytime the early church birthed the fruits of God, it overflowed from their dependency on God and an empowerment from the Spirit of God. So the early church, if they birthed the fruits of God, it was from their posture of dependency on God, and it came empowered by the Spirit of God in them. And so what we're going to look at are three things during our time. One, what we're going to look at is just how this marked the church uh, in the first century. Two, we're going to look at how much we hate this um, today. Like, we hate dependency. We hate uh, uh, needing other people. We hate needing anything other than ourselves. And then three, uh, how can we be a city within a city in respect to that uh, in the 21st century in Denver today? That sound good? Yeah. yeah, all right, let's get after it. All right, one, let's look at how this value of dependency marked the early church. Typically, we teach through passages of Scripture at a time. I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, this morning where I'm going to give you like a 10,000-foot view narrative sweep of how this theme emerges from the life of Jesus into the birth of the early church. So let's start with Jesus. At the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus is born. He is born a baby. He grows into a man. He kicks off his public ministry around the age of 30. He proclaims, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he does not carry out this mission in isolation, but rather gathers to himself a dozen disciples and other men and women as well that he pours his life into to raise up because he knows Jesus is very, very self-aware. I'm only going to live for a short period of time. I'm going to die in my early 30s, which is kind of freaky to think about because a number of us are there or past there at this point. Jesus dies in his early 30s, and consequently, he is raising up leaders for the purpose of saying, hey, when I go, I want you to continue, I want you to continue and to advance this great mission to the very ends of the earth. Jesus was always preparing his disciples for his early and startling death. Actually, in John 15, Jesus says something very striking in preparation of uh, his own death. He says this, and I know we're going to be kind of breezing through stuff. All this will be on the screen, but you're welcome to flip there as well. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, we walk through this passage deeper during our Easter series if you want to kind of hear more thoughts about this, but Jesus very explicitly gives this analogy in the same way that a branch is utterly dependent upon a vine for its life existence as well as the birthing of the fruit that it is meant to give uh, existence to. So you are utterly dependent on me. And then he makes a very striking point with it. He really drives it home by saying, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, at first, this feels like an exaggeration from Jesus, doesn't it? If you're thinking critically, like for me, I'm always thinking through the lens of like, what would a skeptic think about this? And if I was skeptical, I would come back and be like, 
That's a bit of hyperbole. That's a bit of an exaggeration because I don't even believe in God or I don't really take God that seriously. And consequently, I can do all sorts of things, right? Like I can get a good job and you live in Colorado, so you can have all these epic experiences that you post on social media and make other people jealous about. Um, you have all these sorts of things that you can do even if you're not a Christian or it's even easy to, as a Christian to read this and be like, man, well, I have an atheist neighbor and his car is sweet and he did all that apart from Jesus. And it's like, yeah, like that's not the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying like, you can't do anything, including like get a car or go to the bathroom without me. He gives a very specific, this is what you can't do without me. That is that you are unable to bear much fruit. That's the language he uses there, that bears much fruit. Fruit in the Bible is a reference to the goodness and the flourishing in our lives that only God can produce. And Jesus is telling them, look, in the same way that a branch is completely dependent on a vine to produce fruit, so a human being must have that kind of intimacy and dependency with me. Let's fast forward on the timeline. So Jesus lives, he dies, he resurrects and starts gathering together his scattered followers. His followers, even as kind of Jesus, to his best uh, attempt, tried to prepare them. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, don't be surprised. He dies, they freak out. Like, they freak out, he's abandoned us, this is all over. Oh my gosh, Jesus resurrects, and then he gathers together these people to say, no, 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 this thing is not over, it's just getting started. Now we see the best uh, kind of glimpse into this, I think, in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus starts preparing his regathered disciples together to take up this mission to reach the very ends of the earth. And here's what he says, verse 45, he opened, that's Jesus opened their minds, Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So he's basically done a Bible study lesson. Like this is what the Bible is all about. It's about my life, about my death, about my resurrection and this gospel, this good news being proclaimed in advance to the very ends of the earth. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Now, pause for a second. Put yourself there. You see a man just die and resurrect, a little freaky, very cool. This guy has proved his authority that he is who he says he is. And he's like, I got one more job for you, which at that point I'd be like, tell me. You know, like, tell, like, you, okay, what is it? I want you to tell everyone everywhere about this. Now, for me, I, like, thrive off of efficiency and getting things done. So Jesus, like, he wouldn't have even finished his sentence before I would have been like, okay, I'm on it, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to go do it. Or if I'm the one who's giving the command, here's the way I would have done it. Go tell everyone everywhere about this. Why are you still standing here? Go, like, go. You got a lot of people to reach. And what does Jesus do? The exact opposite of what any of us would expect. He says, I want you to tell everyone everywhere about this. Now, wait. Look at this. Verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Like, that's stunning to me. The first thing that Jesus tells his disciples in the carrying out of the Great Commission, that's what this is called here, is to do nothing. It's not nothing, but it feels like nothing, particularly if you thrive off efficiency. Waiting. Waiting and praying and asking and depending and acknowledging insufficiency and acknowledging weakness and declaring to God, if you don't move explicitly through the giving of the third person of the triune Godhead, if you do not give us God the Holy Spirit to empower us, this mission and movement will never begin to advance. 
Fast forward, next part of the timeline, Acts chapter 1. We see that the disciples are doing the very thing that Jesus had commanded them to do. Verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then if you look down at verse 14, it says this, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It's a stunning picture of dependency. What you've called us to do is huge. The fruit you've called us to bear is enormous. And we won't do anything other than pray until you give us God the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to empower us, to do the very thing that you've called us to do. What follows Acts 1 is Acts 2. God's spirit falls, and what is amazing is this diversity of scenes of fruit-bearing moments. I'm going to just restrain myself to give you a dozen. All right? I'm just going to fire them at you, and you can try to follow along, or you can just like soak in the majesty of what the Holy Spirit did in the first 13 chapters of Acts. So just um, hold on to your butts, all right? Chapter 2, verse 4. The Spirit empowers the Apostle Peter to speak in such a way that various people of different ethnicities and languages are able to hear the gospel in their own language. 2, 17 through 41. The Spirit empowers Peter to give a sermon so powerful that people hear it, and they, the text says they're literally cut to the heart, asking the question, what are we supposed to do? And in response, 3,000 people are saved. 2, 42 through 47, the Spirit creates the first church that begins birthing the beautiful fruits of gospel community and mission. Chapter 4, verse 8, Peter is empowered to courageously speak against the political leaders of the day who are telling him to stop talking about Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 9, the Holy Spirit rebukes and refines the first church community to keep it holy, culminating the death of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who described as lying to the Spirit and testing him. Chapter 6, verse 3, the Spirit helps the early church pick the right leaders and their next wave of organization because the thing is a logistical nightmare. It's grown too fast. There's no organization. Everybody's getting their feelings hurt, and it would have freaked all you type A people out. Chapter 7, verse 55, following the preaching of a sixth sermon by a deacon, the first deacon named Stephen, the original Jewish hearers freak out to such a degree they decide to kill Stephen, and the Spirit empowers Stephen not only to die well, but to pray for the forgiveness of his murders in the process of him dying also. Chapter 8, verse 29, the Spirit prompts Peter to share the gospel with an Ethiopian government official so the gospel might spread into that region of the world as well. Chapter 9, verse 31, the Spirit comforts God's people in the midst of people trying to murder Paul following his conversion. Chapter 10, the Spirit leads to the gospel exploding amongst the Gentiles so that God's multi-ethnic global vision for his church might be advanced. Chapter 11, verse 28, the Spirit gives insight that a great famine is coming and prompts the first Christians to preemptively send relief so that people might survive. Chapter 13, verse 2, the church is praying and fasting. That is, they are uh, withholding food, not because it's some sort of super spiritual discipline that bizarrely forces the hand of God to bless them, but more of a spiritual discipline that reinstills inside of us our utter insufficiency and dependency on the God who made us and gave us the very breath that fills up our lungs. In the process, the Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas to go out and start new churches, which they did with such success in such frequency that we now gather in this room 2,000 years later. We're like 12 time zones away from where all this was going on, 2,000 years removed, and you have gathered together in Denver, Colorado, in the morning, instead of brunching, singing, learning about the truths of who God is because you believe, or you're at least willing to entertain, that this might actually be true. The point 
is not to be like, oh, snap, that's some cool stuff. It is cool stuff. That's the most like, theologically precise way I can put it. It's cool. It's sweet. But there's something far more significant that's going on there. That is that any time the early church was birthing these fruits of God, fruits like people being saved from sin, salvation extending to various ethnicities and languages, and a diverse body being created, the proclamation of sound doctrine, a healthy church community with good leaders, being full of courage in the midst of terrifying circumstances, meeting the practical needs of the people around them. These fruits were only born out of their dependency with God and out of an overflow of the empowerment of the Spirit of God. I just want to read this to you again because this is important for you to see. Is that any time the early church birth the fruits of God. Can we bring that back up? Uh, back, back. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Anytime the early church birthed the fruits of God, it overflowed from the dependency on God and an empowerment from the Spirit of God. That's what you're seeing emerge. Two, we hate dependency. We hate dependency this thing that was valued so much in the early church that marked their successes, that marked their fruit. We hate that, if we're honest. We wouldn't say it that way because we're in church and it's weird to be like, I hate the very thing they just did. But we feel it, don't we? We, we love, what do we love? We love independence. We love autonomy. We love self-sufficiency. We love not having to depend on anyone for anything. I mean, think about this. If you describe somebody as being dependent or needy, do you mean it as a compliment? Like, if you went on a date with somebody and they're like, Hey, girl, how'd it go? Like, this is the way I imagine girls talk to each other. I don't know how they speak to each other, but, <laughs> but let's just say theoretically I'm right, okay? Like, hey, girl, how'd it go? Like, oh, man, it went so good. Like, he's so dependent. He's so needy. Like, what's your friend saying? Like, run, run, right? And I feel this in myself. Like, and I'll just give a silly example that I think is actually speaks to something very serious. So two years ago, we went down to one car, because we live in the city, we just didn't need, need a couple of cars. And it means that my wife gets the car about 90% of the time, and I get it maybe 10% of the time. That's probably being generous, we were supposed to share it 50-50, but that's the more fair outcome. Especially we have two young kids, so in her defense, she deserves it 100% of the time. That means that I am carless a lot of times, and that means that I have to ask for rides a lot. That's a normal way in my life, is asking people for rides to get places, and I hate it. I'm just honest, I hate it. I know it sounds silly, and like, Seems like I'm exaggerating. I hate it. I hate. I like helping. I like being there to meet a need. I hate admitting that I have a need. Even as like, I don't have a car and can you give me a ride? Even to the degree that after a gathering about four months ago, I was standing out there on Larimer Street. My parents were in town. We were going to go have brunch, as good Denverites do, after the 1045 service. We're going to go meet at Annie's on Colfax. Old school Denver place. Don't know if you've ever been there. Going to meet at Annie's on Colfax. And I was calling an Uber to get there, even though I was surrounded by the people of God, who I'm like all the time saying, hey, we should depend on one another. And a friend of mine called me out on it. I'm standing on Lambert, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm calling an Uber. He's like, why didn't you ask me for a ride? I'm like, no, no, I'll just call an Uber. It's fine. He's like, so you would rather pay like $7 to have a complete stranger drive you to the other side of town rather than ask me? I'm like, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. That's why I would, I would rather financially pay a stranger than have to admit my need, small need, to, to the people around me as well. We, we hate being dependent on other people. We hate showing weakness. And I think a lot of times for good reason, right? A number of you have had moments where you've exposed your weakness, you've exposed your brokenness, and what you've been met with, even from somebody that you thought you could trust, was not a, a receptivity, 
um, but instead was maybe abandonment. You know, a lot of us are used to that rhythm that if you knew the worst about me, you wouldn't want to be around me. You, you wouldn't want to be close to me at all. And so we construct these lives of autonomy and independence and self-sufficiency. Um, we kind of need people. We need to be around people. We don't really need to depend on people. And I think um, compounded the complexity of all of this that we're talking about is a number of you are really successful in the midst of it as well, which makes this so hard, right? Like probably a number of you even intellectually are like, I live an independent, autonomous life, and I'm actually like winning. You know, like, have you seen my car? Have you seen my bike, as we would say in Denver, would you, have you seen like my job? Have you seen my Instagram feed? And here's what I would say if that's your pushback to me. I would just say, you know what? You're right. Like, again, what we're not saying is you can't do anything apart from Jesus. What we're saying is the areas of life that matter the most can't flourish as God designed them to, intended them to flourish apart from Jesus. That's what we're saying. And I would lovingly push back to you to say just because you might be good at some things doesn't mean you're good at everything. It doesn't mean you're good at the most important things. All right, so don't kind of function of this delusion that like, man, I'm smart. I'm like, that's awesome. I make a lot of money, great. I have incredible experiences, beautiful. But my brother, my sister, what that doesn't mean is in the areas of life that matter the most, I mean flourishing in the way that God designed you to flourish. I mean not just like winning and dating relationships and whatever that means, but being the type of man who becomes the type of husband that demonstrates on the long pattern of marriage, look, I'm going to lead and I'm going to love and I'm going to sacrifice in the way that Jesus Christ led and loved and sacrificed for his church. And I'm talking about being the type of parent that doesn't see these smaller image bearers of the divine as a nuisance or an infringement upon the life you always wanted to live, but entrusted to you by your creator. I'm talking about coming to breathe your final breaths and people saying something more substantive about you than, man, he had some sweet experiences. Who wants that said about them on their deathbed? We want something more, don't we? Even if you're here and exploring spirituality, you want something more and you might not even know what that is. But I'm talking leaving a legacy where your grandchildren can speak well of you and your influence spreads on generationally for the next hundred years. Man, that's the type of stuff that doesn't flourish. That's the type of fruit that isn't born apart from an intimate relationship with Jesus. And I just think, you know, this is a quick aside, but one of the things that really struck me on sabbatical was the, just like being struck with the bankruptcy of people's lives who seemed to have everything from a distance. Like when I was on sabbatical, I basically had no phone, no social media. I was like totally disconnected. Had no idea what was going on in the world. And yeah, you know what's really interesting? I still found out that a multitude of men and women took their own lives who were like wealthier and more influential than any of us could wildly begin to imagine. Now I want to be sensitive here because I'm not trying to downplay the complexities of mental illness or anything like that. But I'm just saying, it was really striking to me being in another country where English is not even the first language that's spoken, totally disconnected from what's going on in the world, and people are asking themselves the question, why are those people over in America that have all the influence and all the power and all the money, why did they end it? That's a complex question. And I think we should definitely hesitate to ask it or answer it in personal you know, individual way. But I think we should be struck by the overarching theme that there are so many men and women, even in the course of our collective short lives, who seem to have everything. They have more money, 
more power, more independence, more autonomy, more self-sufficiency than we could ever begin to dream of. And when you watch a documentary about any of these people and you see behind the curtain, it's almost always emptiness that's there. Almost always emptiness. And yet, here's the crazy thing. Let me say this to some of you. Some of you are chasing that crap, believing that it'll fulfill you if you can have it. Like, you are architecting a life around, like, if I can just be more independent, if I can just be more self-sufficient, if I can just be less weak, I'll be more happy. Like, let's learn from the examples of those who went before us. We do not have to replicate these same mistakes. And so the scriptures call us to be countercultural, a city within the city, as we celebrate our weakness and our dependency. Probably most other environments in the city who are getting together this week are not be like, weakness, who's weak around here? And somebody's like, I'm weak. And we're like, yeah, that's sweet. You're weak, I'm weak. Let's, like, that would be weird in most other environments that you're going to be in during this week. But this is where the church of God is different. It's because, as we strive to be a city within the city, the gospel pr- provides for us a unique permission to be imperfect, a unique assurance to be weak, a unique um, invitation into confessing our brokenness and acknowledging our finiteness. The gospel is not, and some of you have been around Christianity, um, maybe culturally to some degree, where you believe functionally that what the gospel is is like, all right, I decided to get religious, and I do the right things, and I don't do the bad things as much anymore, and I'll sort of mount a, uh, a heap of credits that I will someday be able to give to God, and he'll be like, man, you did awesome, and you turned over a new leaf, and great job, you're in. That's, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not that you're good enough for God. The gospel is that you'll never be good enough for God, but God is good. And that in his grace and in his mercy, he has stepped out of heaven into history to do all the things required for salvation that you have no capacity to meet in your end. Here's what that means, very practically. We talk about this a lot, but very practically what this means then is God does not love you because you are um, able to put on an act to trick him into dying for you. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is that when Jesus saw the worst in us, he did not abandon us, but go to the cross for us. And consequently, there is this permission for vulnerability in that moment then. The one person in the universe whose opinion really matters, he's seen me for who I really am, and he loves me anyways. Most of us function out of these lives where we either can be fully known or fully loved, right? And if you fully know who I am, you're going to abandon me because I'm actually weird when you get to really know me. And most of us, it's not just weird, but it's dark too, isn't it? And what do we do? We construct these entire bizarre lives where we project an image of ourselves that's different than who we even are in reality. We lie in conversations, not big lies, but small lies. Somebody like asks you, like, hey, I like that shirt. How much was it? And you're like, uh... And some of you like lie about how it was like less expensive than what you paid for it because you're like, well, if you know what I really paid for this shirt, you're not going to like me anymore. And so uh, it was a nickel. It was given. It was a free at Goodwill. Or, you know, others of you travel in circles where Goodwill is not uh, smiled upon, it's frowned upon. And so consequently, you're like, it costs $1,000. Kanye made this shirt. And, um, he, you know, like what... Like, we're lying all the time. We say we like things that we don't actually like. We say we like music that we don't actually like. No, we like the idea of being liked, and we force ourselves to like things we don't even like, if that makes any sense. And the gospel gives this radical permission for vulnerability and transparency to be like, I am not as good as I pretend to be. I have needs. I'm broken. I'm finite. I'm weak. I'm tired. 
Jesus Christ, when he saw the worst of me, he did not abandon me, but he went to the cross to die for me. And consequently, I am pursuing being increasingly transformed to the image of Jesus, but at the same time, I am acknowledging humbly my brokenness before him, and not just before him, but other people as well. What happens when we understand weakness from this perspective is weakness actually becomes an advantage. Vulnerability actually becomes quite beautiful. J.I. Packer, he said this. He, talked, he said, um, he said, this was in uh, Knowing God, um, that the weaker we feel, the harder we lean on the one who is actually strong. All right, somebody else said this this past week. If, if weakness is, or sorry, if dependency is the goal, and that's the goal, that's what we saw in the early church. If dependency is the goal, then weakness is our advantage. Then weakness is our advantage. Because it pushes us to lean. It convinces us to acknowledge, like, maybe I don't have this universe of my life spiraling in control as much as I try to convince everybody else that I have. Now, in this series, I'll talk about one of these things I've been thinking a lot about, and so I've been thinking a lot about dependency. At the end, I'm just going to give you kind of one simple action step each week of ways that I want to challenge you or ways we're going to maybe um, try to change a little bit of what we do as a church. And so I thought a lot about, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, dependency in the context of the church gathering. And I think a lot of times what happens is that in the context of the church gathering, we come largely with the expectation to spectate, not participate, as well as this sort of unspoken pressure to sort of feel like we have our acts together. You know, like you see somebody you know, you see somebody you don't know, and they're like, how are you doing? And it's like, somebody really close to you could have died last night, but I feel like almost like the pressure sometimes is to be like, I'm fantastic. I've actually never been better in my entire life, other than the fact that like this person just died and I feel like I'm dying on the inside as a consequence. And the way that I think we can be different is that as we come into this environment, we come with the expectation to both confess and meet the needs of the people around us in conversation, in prayer. I just think most of us don't come into this space with that expectation. We're honest. I don't either. Like, I think we'll ask for prayer if things are, like, really, really bad, right? If it's, like, if we're on the verge of divorce, if we're on the verge of taking our own life, it's like, I might just begin to crack open that, like, I want somebody to pray over me. But let me tell you my observation, beloved, is that it's the people who are the healthiest who have the regular rhythms of ongoing care in their life. And they are asking for help, not only in emergencies, but in the daily ebb and flow of our weaknesses being exposed. The people with the healthiest marriages are not the people who just start doing counseling when it's like, and we're going to get divorced tomorrow. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen in that session that's going to change your mind. But it's like as weaknesses, as conflicts rise up, this rhythm of being like, we got to tell somebody, we need help. We can't do this alone. What if we as the people of God, as we gather together, embody those same rhythms and that same expectations? We came in this space. Yes, we sing about the truths of God and we learn about the truths of God from his word, but we come expectant to be cut to the heart and to ask God, what is it that we're supposed to do? Maybe even put it in a single sentence, Here's the way I summed it up, is that our gathering would not be a place to consume or critique, but an environment where we are expectant to express our needs and to meet the needs of those around us. 
I think a lot of times in American Christianity, even as unchurched as Denver is, a lot of times the expectation is we come into this space ready to consume or to critique. That is, to come in and say, just in the same way I have to go to the grocery store to get certain products for me to exist on my own, I come to the church to get certain products, certain religious goods and services to be able to exist and go on about, about my week. I think others of us come in ready to critique, right? They kind of come in and like, well, I like this part, I don't like this part, and this is what I feel about the speaking, and this is what I feel about the singing, and it's almost like you're going to a movie, and somebody's like, what'd you think? And you're like, well, I like this part, but it closed kind of poorly, but, you know, the, the action scene, that was fantastic. It's like, this isn't a movie. Like, I'm right here in front of you. This is not a screen, okay? It's like that we would not come in ready to critique or to consume, but expect it both to confess our needs and to meet the needs of the people around us. And so we're going to develop a rhythm at the end of our gathering. I'm going to talk about this a little bit at the end of our service. But what I want to do during this time is just take some time to pray, to listen to God, the way his spirit is personally uh, leading uh, each and every one of us. And then uh, I'll come back up to give some real kind of simple action steps um, in terms of how we're going to try to embody this rhythm uh, for the month of August. So let's pray, and then we'll talk about uh, our diverse ways of uh, responding. God, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for your kindness. We're thankful for your spirit. And we're thankful for our, uh, our dependency on you. That is a reality. Jesus said, I'm like a doctor. I came to call sick people. And the reality is it's not because there's well people and sick people, but everybody's sick and only a few people can acknowledge the reality of their condition. And so God, what I would pray is that we collectively, as the people of the Summit Church, would acknowledge our weakness not so that we would wallow in self-despair, but instead that we would lean on the one person in the universe who's actually strong. God, there is one being in the totality of the universe who's actually self-sufficient and autonomous and independent, and he's you. And consequently then, let that put us back in our place. And let us respond well now in this time. We ask these things in your name. Amen.